Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. My name is Andy Garcia, checking in from Auckland, New Zealand. Today I am here with my special guest, Ruth Hatton. She's a pet nutritionist, animal naturopath, and plant-based coach. So she's going to come on and just share her expertise, her insight, and educate us all things nutrition. She's checking in from the sunshine coast of Australia and really excited to have her on today. Uh, For those of you who know me and follow me, you know I'm big on diet and nutrition for animals as well. So uh, Ruth, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. You know, it's a isolation nation right now. So, you know, we'll do our best to get through this podcast in silence and quiet from you know the world around us. So just want to uh, jump in now. You know, I, I read your background a little bit, Ruth. So just talk to me, you know, you, how did you get into law? First of all, you know, for everybody, Ruth is a lawyer as well. How did you get into law? And then how did you go from being a lawyer to an animal therapist? Please share with us. Yeah, so it's quite interesting because I didn't really have any plans to be a lawyer. I was studying journalism. So I I left school and I started uni and I I thought, I want to be a journalist. I want to be on TV. I want to be reporting about the things that matter. You know, I might even be a foreign correspondent. That's kind of like the life that I envisaged for myself. And then as what happens with me quite a lot, um, I I started to get bored of journalism. And then I was looking at the course guide and what grades you needed and everything. And I was like, oh, I could get into law. That's, that's kind of cool. Because I used to watch, you know, a lot of Law and Order and like 21 Jump Street for people in my generation who know that the original version of 21 Jump Street, not the modern version. Um, and so lots of crime shows, lots of law shows. And so, you know, I was kind of like, this would be really cool, you know. And so then I applied and I got in. So I finished, I did a double, changed over to a double degree. So I was still doing the journalism. because I was like, I'm not just going to stop. I'm, you know, three quarters way through the course. Um, And then picked up the law and then finished that. And then I was back in the day, we had to do like two years of training first between when we finished our law degree and then we became a lawyer. So it was during that process, I was doing that. And I was like, actually, you know what? I do not enjoy this. And I was in the bathroom of the Supreme Court and I could overhear someone in the store next to me talking. And it's like, ah, she's a journalist. So I could tell from what she's saying. And then after we, you know, came out of our respective toilets, I um, stopped her and said, hey, couldn't help but overhear you. Sounds really interesting. I've studied journalism, blah, 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 blah. So I was all set to go and do some practical work experience with her. But then this is the time when there was um, the bombings in Bali um, Mm. and she got called over to Bali to report on it. And so the work experience never happened. So I never actually got to, we bumped into each other into a nightclub one Friday night. Um, But apart from that, um, never really got to explore that any further. And then I took a job as, um, you know, as a lawyer and just got into that industry and, um was in it for and still am in it somewhat but um taken a a, quite a huge step back from it but was in it for probably about um before I started on this course of my career um I would have been doing it for about 12 years maybe a little bit less and then I was frustrated with it I it was not the work I wanted to be. I was stuck in an office. I loved animals. I just wanted to be, I loved animals. I loved health. They were my passions. 
Um, and I was just like, I do not want to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. Um, this is stressful. This zaps my energy. What else can I do? What can I, what is something that I can do for the rest of my life till the day that I drop down dead kind of thing. And then I knew it was going to be something to do with health. I knew it was going to be something to do with animals. I'd spent some time as a lawyer um, for an animal charity down in Sydney. And I was like, I've got to, it's got to be something where I have direct interaction with animals because I do a bit of animal advocacy as well. And, you know, part of my law career was being an animal lawyer. Um, but a lot of that was indirect. So I was helping animals indirectly. And um, I would come home from doing that work and just get so much um, support from my animals. And it's like that direct interaction is so important to me. It helps me, you know, it helps me to, you know, thrive and to flourish. Um, and so I knew it had to be something where I had direct interaction with animals. I knew it had to be something to do with health. And then my mum said to me, why don't you be an animal naturopath? And I was like, is that even a thing? And she's like, yes, it is. <laughs> so then I started researching, like, how can I, how can I do this? Like, what courses are there, you know? Because I'd obviously, you know, been through high school, been through universities, did two degrees, you know, had done a lot, had very much an academic aspect to my life. So I was like, I've got to get a qualification. I've got to do some study. Um, so I looked around and in Australia, there weren't, I think there were two courses to choose from. Um, and I chose the one that was, seemed to be much more vigilant, much more, much heavier assessment basis. Um, you know, there are some courses out there that are just kind of like, here you go, here's the material, do it, do an exam at the end. And it's like, I didn't want that. I wanted to have my hand held throughout the process. I wanted to make sure I was getting assessments at every module, throughout every module, making sure that the things that I, that I was doing things right, you know. Um, so that I was fully prepared for when I started my business and went out there and started to help animals that I knew that I had that confidence that I have been assessed across through, you know, throughout every aspect of my training. Um, so I chose that course. It took me a while to do it because I was, you know, I was still being a lawyer full time. Um, but when I completed the first aspect of that course, which was nutrition, that's when I started my business. Um, so I just started it as, you know, I was a pet nutritionist, cat and dog nutritionist and working with um, prevention, but also healing as far as we can heal through nutrition. Um, and yeah, that was, that was the beginning of it. And then I just continued doing my studies as well as being a lawyer, as well as, you know, my pet nutrition business. Um, and then as I completed each, you know, each in, it was a diploma course and throughout each uh, each aspect of that diploma, there was certificate qualifications. So as I finished, got each, obtained each certificate qualification, I then added that modality into my business offerings. Um, so the next one to come in was massage therapy. So I started offering massage and then finally was getting qualif qualified um, in herbal medicine, which was in two, two parts. The first thing was learning about how herbal medicine works and the benefits and how to, how to use it. And then the second part was actually making medicine so that I can make formulate specific um, individualized uh, herbal medicines for my clients. So now I'm fully qualified and offering all aspects um, of my business that an animal naturopath can do. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's my journey really. Wow. Powerful story. So just, uh, you know, just quick shout out. What school was that for those maybe thinking about taking this venture themselves? Yeah, it was the National College of Traditional Medicine. 
um, based in Melbourne, Victoria. Um, it's a mostly online course. There was a practical component to the massage therapy, obviously, like flew down to Melbourne. And I think it was, was down there for a week, just doing more of the practical aspects of it and also practicing on a lot of dogs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That hands-on um, credential is really what you need too, you know, for the my experience as well. Yeah, for the physical therapies, definitely, because how can you learn just from looking at, a, looking at a computer screen and reading a book as to actually put your hands on an animal um, and treat them in a way that's going to, you know, match with their um, musculature, you know, the musculoskeletal system and actually provide them benefit rather than, you know, harm. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between animals thriving versus just surviving. Yeah, it's a great question because I think for me in, the, in what I do, it is about helping our animals to thrive, not just to survive. So our, our animals can survive on the most commonly fed diet that people feed these days, which is, which is you know, commercial food. Um, and most of that commercial food is very processed, very high in carbohydrates, um, contains artificial ingredients, chemical ingredients, potentially toxic ingredients. So some animals will survive on that food and be just fine. Um, there will be a very rare exception where an animal will live a long life and be healthy throughout that life and simply die of old age. But that's the exception to the rule when they're eating that very processed food. Um, so in my opinion, to thrive is to live a long life and being healthy throughout that life without disease and simply dying of old age when the body just starts to shut down from natural causes. Causes. Cool. <laughs> yeah, you get my point, right? Yeah, um, gotcha. <laughs> you got it, yeah. Whereas to survive is either to die prematurely, um, and that may be of disease or of an earlier shutting down of the body, or they die of disease, and it's a more painful way of living and also of passing. So we want to avoid that as much as possible because we love our animals and we, want, we don't want them to be in pain. We don't want them to suffer. Um, and so that's why it's, you know, well, let's help them to thrive. Let's, let's help them to avoid disease. Or if they're sick, let's help them to heal from disease and then prevent it from getting worse as they continue to age. Um, so that's really the main, main differences. And it's, it applies the same for humans as well. You know, the difference between humans surviving and thriving is the same thing. A human surviving is a human who has a long life, but that life is healthy. They're vibrant. They have energy. They can do the things that they want to enjoy. And they die when their body simply just shuts down from old age. It's exactly the same situation. Absolutely. So, you know, how do you advocate, you know, an animal thrive? How does an animal thrive with, through, let's say, let's, let's just talk about cats and dogs here. Um, you know, how does an animal thrive through diet? Through diet? How do they thrive through diet? Well, I mean, it depends how far we want to go with this because I, I know what other questions you want to ask me. Um, but, you know, we could just flow and be flexy with it. Um, through diet, they will thrive Okay, well, if we go back to basics in terms of pet food, um, pet, a lot of the pet food on the market today is like junk food for pets. It's like if you were going to eat McDonald's every day for the rest of your life and if you imagine what, is, what would your health look like. You know, there are humans who have done experiments. You know, there's a guy, I can't remember which guy, I think it was an American guy, um, and he went and all he ate was McDonald's. And over a very, very short period of time, he got really, really sick. Um, now, 
this, there, the research that's done on, on cats and dogs is nowhere near to the extent that's done on um, humans. Um, but basically, um, that kind of diet is not going to help them to thrive. And when I say to thrive, it is those, it's having energy, you know, it's an animal who is lethargic all the time um, is not an animal who is thriving. An animal who has the ability to engage and enjoy in their natural behaviours, you know, take, for example, a cat. A cat loves to hunt. Now, it would be irresponsible um, in this day and age to allow our cats to just go out and hunt and fend for themselves um, unless they are, you know, a non-domesticated cat. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, unfortunate stories about cats going from being you know, a house cat to being abandoned and then having to, you know, fend for themselves. But generally speaking, um, if we have our cats, we, we wouldn't let them just go and fend for themselves. Um, although in saying that, that is the best diet for them. Um, so you've got that contradiction there. You know, what is a natural diet for a cat? A natural diet for a cat is, is mice. Um, so engaging in then, going back to what I was saying, engaging in natural behaviours, the cat's natural behaviour is to hunt. So it's not just, it's not letting our cats go out and hunt because that's irresponsible. We want to, you know, they also eat birds. Um, and so we want to preserve that bird life, right? Um, so, but it's creating an environment where they can engage in that natural hunting behaviour. So the way that that shows up in their diet is, to feed a diet that replicates their natural diet. And it's not about just feeding like a minced meat diet because if you think use the mouse analogy, a mouse is not minced. They have to. First, they've got to kill it. Now, that's harder to replicate with food, but you can do that through play with toys. Um, but to replicate it from uh, an actual eating perspective once the animal is, has, been, um, has died, um, then it's about, well, how do you get that the chewing factor, right? So they've got to chew that mouse to get into the flesh, and they'll eat. They'll eat the. They'll eat the fur. They'll eat the skin, and then they'll get inside of the mouse, and they'll eat the bones, and they'll eat the muscles, and they'll eat the organ meats, and they'll they'll eat um, the gut contents, right? So part of helping them to thrive through diet is replicating their natural diet as much as we can, and what happens then is there's also that mental, emotional aspect to well-being that comes into play. They're getting to eat food in a way or as close a way to their natural, natural way they would eat it by having the different textures, by having, you know, when a cat eats a bone, the crunch of that bone, you know, having to move the bone to the back areas of their mouth, the back areas of their jaw, and actually break down that bone with their back teeth, Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the texture of it. So not just feeding it minced or not just feeding it soft, but feeding like chunks because in a natural diet that would reflect what there would be. But, you know, there's no, it's not like they get out a mincer and mince the mouse after they've killed the mouse and then eat it, you know. They're eating it in its whole natural <laughs> form. So that for them in terms of, you know, nutritional perspective but also emotional, mental well-being, allowing, to, allowing them to engage in their natural behaviours, all of these things are relevant to thriving all of these things are relevant to good health. It's not just about the food that they eat, right? But they're getting to eat the way they naturally eat, which is going to make them feel inside more of that emotional, mental satisfaction as opposed to here you go, here's your mush, eat it. You know? Yes, absolutely. So I don't know if that, I mean, I could go on for days and days and days and I do often go on tangents because all these little things just come into my brain and I think, oh, I should say that because that's relevant too. 
But a thriving through diet, so it's, that's one aspect of it is actually eating the food in a way that they would naturally eat it so that they engage their natural behaviours, get that enjoyment from it from that perspective. But then it's also about the nutrients in that food, making sure that they're getting all the nutrients they need, which also means getting the nutrients in a way that they can absorb it. It's one thing with just going, you know, if you buy like particular form of, you know, so say a prescription form of food, Right. And it's been scientifically formulated. It complies with the AFCO standards. It's got everything that they need. From a scientific perspective, yes, it has everything that they need. But can they actually absorb those nutrients? Will the nutrients in that food, which are synthetic, a big part of those foods is synthetic vitamins and minerals, artificial colours, flavours, preservatives, etc. Um, Low-quality pet-grade ingredients, right, that has been cooked, cooked to very high temperatures. So with all of those things in mind, is that a food that's going to provide them with all the nutrients that they need? Can they absorb those nutrients from that food when it's fed in that way? Um, So the best way is to get nutrients from food, not from a laboratory, not whittled down man-made white synthetic powders of vitamins and minerals, et cetera, right? The best way for the body to absorb nutrients is through food. The body recognises it as food and processes it as food rather than some foreign non-food ingredient. And with that, then you'll, with food, you get better absorption and then you're more likely to have an animal who is thriving from the nutrient perspective um, when they eat a natural diet. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So ultimately, raw feeding for cats and dogs is as close to their natural um, way of being that you can get, you know, you know, I know that sometimes you have to do the, um, your options are limited in terms of maybe, maybe it's, it's mints, um, raw feeding, uh, or maybe that's the availability that you can get your hands on. Um, But let's just talk about the, you know, raw feeding in general. And, you know, some, some people get a little bit worried about, you know, raw feeding, you know, um, you know, how do I do it? Where do I start? Um, is it sanitary, you know, things like that. So, you know, let's just talk about the six common mistakes, uh, that people make when feeding raw. Yeah, good. Excellent. So, um, the, one of the, one of those six common mistakes is feeding only meat. Um, and everything that I talk about is based on nature, right? It's based on what's their natural diet. So feeding a meat-only diet is not a natural diet for a dog or a cat. Even the cat who is an obligate carnivore, who the majority of the diet is, is you know, protein, but it's also fat and there's also plant matter in there. If you think about what a mouse eats or what a bird eats, you know, they eat plants, they eat grains, right? Mice eat grains. That's a predominant part of their diet. Um, birds will eat you know they'll also might eat some vegetable scraps as well birds will eat plants you know so um feeding only meat is not going to give them everything that they need a dog the content the plant matter in a dog's diet is significantly greater than it is in a cat a cat it's like three to twelve percent of their diet would be plant matter the rest of it is protein and fat with dogs you're looking at about in terms of the ratios that i work with you're looking at about um 20 20 to 30% of the diet is plant matter. Now, um, some people, they go, right, I'm going to start feeding raw and some will feed the prey, the prey what's called the prey model diet, um, which is very, which I think only allows, it depends on 
you know, you look at these things and people interpret them different ways. Some people who say a prey model diet is like 5% plant matter. Some people prey model diet, there is no plant matter whatsoever. Um, and I don't agree that that's a, 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 nutrition, a nutritious form of a diet for a dog because it ignores the fact that they do eat plants. If you think about the wolf, the, you know, our today's domestic dog, when we go back in time, derived from the wolf, a wolf, yes, will eat, will kill an animal and eat that animal, but will also eat, not all the time, but will sometimes eat the gut contents. And a lot of time they are killing, you know, herbivores, right? Um, or at least, you know, omnivores, right? And so there's going to there's be a plant aspect to the diet. But when animals are scarce, um, they're not they're not killing animals. What are they eating? They might find some scraps around of carcasses that they've let, you know, rot, you know, before that they might find that. Um, or they might then go and eat some insects and some bugs. Um, and then they go, well, okay, I'm going to eat some plants because that's all that's in my environment, right? So, you know, wolves will have, you know, there's research that shows that wolf will eat, you know, go and eat berries, will go and eat leaves, you know, plants and things like that. So it is natural to feed the plant foods in there but it's important to feed those plant foods in a way that they can absorb them. So it's not just going, here's a carrot because they won't, they don't, dogs don't have the digestive enzymes to properly break down that carrot and get the nutrients from the carrot. Right? So feeding only meat is the first common mistake. It's not a natural diet to feed only meat. You will get nutrient deficiencies if you feed only meat and that will be a diet with virtually no fiber um, and so you, you could have um, a dog with digestive issues if they're only eating meat. There is a belief also, some holistic vets believe that a meat-only diet will potentially cause cancer. So there's a lot of concerns around feeding a meat-only diet. The next, the next six common mistake, I've kind of already touched on it, not feeding any vegetables, right? Um, it's a natural part of both a dog's and a cat's diet. It helps with fibre, it helps with roughage, moving things along. Um, an animal will also get roughage and fibre through eating the skin and fur of an animal. Um, but adding a bit more um, can help just move things along. And also it's a really great way to get what's called um, phytonutrients, plant nutrients into their diet that, you, that cannot be, um, that is not provided in meat. So it's providing that complete diet and replicating what their natural diet is. Um, the next, the third common mistake is leaving, leaving out organ meats. Organs are like nutrient powerhouses for cats and dogs. You know, they're brilliant. They're a source of protein, obviously, but they're also a source of things like vitamin E, which is a great antioxidant vitamin, vitamin A, um, you know, all of the array of vitamins. You know, obviously, obviously when, you, know, you, you don't have the fiber aspect that vegetables have, and vegetables also have the vitamins and minerals in them. But these, you know, if you think of um, liver, liver from cows, beef liver is very, very rich in vitamin E. Um, and that's vitamin E being an antioxidant supports the immune system. So there are other vitamins um, in the organ meats as well. I could go on and list all of them, um, you know, and then you've got your minerals as well. Um, so all of those in there, it's like this little neat this little neat pack of nutrients in those organ meats. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a multivitamin pill for your cat and for your dog. I like to refer to it as, um, and you don't need much. It only needs to be, and this kind of differs as well. You don't really want to go above 10%, generally around the five to 10% mark that's recommended. Um, I did read at one point, someone was recommending more than 10% because they actually did a breakdown of when you, if you look at an animal, 
how much of that animal is actually organ versus, you know, muscle, skeleton and all of that. I'm not, I'm not so convinced that, we, that they need more than 10% because what can happen is just like with commercial foods, you can get nutrient excesses. And also um, when too much organ meat is fed, it can, it's very rich, right? So a lot of animals have digestive problems and feeding very rich foods like, you know, high quantities of organ meats can cause problems digestively. The most common symptom you're going to see is diarrhea. Um, so I, when I'm working out my treat, my diet plans for my clients, I generally will hover around that five to 10% mark depending, depending on the individual animal. Um, and then the other next, the fourth common mistake is thinking that supplements aren't necessary. I actually had someone go onto my Instagram account and commenting on me saying that this is a mistake. Um, I left it on there so people can go and look at it because um, it was my post that I did on this, you know, what are the six common mistakes when we're feeding your cat or dog? Um, and their argument was that if you are feeding a true to natural raw diet, they're going to get everything they need. The problem with that theory is that any human who knows about a lot about health for themselves knows that our soil is nutrient deficient, right? The soil is kind of like the beginning phases of the food um, process. You know, animals, you know, we, we come from the soil, we go back to the soil, right? Now, vegetables are grown in soil. Animals eat vegetables, right? Animals will also eat soil. Um, people who are listening to this are probably seeing their dogs eat dirt, right? So if you think of a cow, a cow eats grass, the grass is in the soil, the grass grows from the soil, right? With the soil being nutritionally depleted, there are less, there's a lesser nutrient value in our food, right? So that's one reason why supplementation is necessary. The other reason why supplementation is necessary is as much as we can try, unless we are going and collecting whole carcasses to feed our animals, we can never 100% replicate a natural diet, right? Because we, we're, doing, we're modifying things. Um, in, so, for example, with my cat clients, what I would do is include, I make them up a, a remedy, a food-based supplement, which has a green, some beautiful greens um, in there. And it also, I used to put barley brown in there. Um, I've recently changed the formulation over to um, coconut. But the, the purpose of that barley bran, that coconut, is to act as a replacement of the skin and the fur, right? So the, that's not an exact replacement. It's as close as I can get in a way that's not going to cause harm. Um, but there's another reason is we cannot, you know, I'm not going to go and get a mouse and say, here, this is your dinner. And so without giving that food, without giving that skin, um, supplementation can also be necessary for any gaps that we might have when we're not feeding a whole, you know, whole carcass diet. Um, so that's basically why I say supplements are necessary. And also I will mention that when I say supplements, I'm talking about supplements that come from food, um, not synthetic supplements. So it's not always that you can get everything food-based, but a lot, of the, a lot of the time you can get supplements that have been derived from food as opposed to created by man in a laboratory, yeah? Yep. Um, the fifth one is ignoring micronutrient requirements. So you've got your micronutrients and your macronutrients. For those who don't know, the macronutrients are your protein, your carbs, and your fat, right? For your micronutrients are everything else, and they are just as important as macronutrients. They're your things like your vitamins, your minerals, your fatty acids, all of those things. 
Um, so these are all an essential part of the cat's or a dog's diet. And the best sources of these micronutrients, you know, I end up being quite repetitive, but it's from food, fresh food, whole foods or food-based supplements. So the sixth most common mistake when feeding raw is misunderstanding the macronutrient ratio. So these are your protein, your carbs and your fat. Now, a lot, majority of commercial pet foods on the market today contain significantly high levels of carbohydrates and sometimes up to 50%. Um, you know, I've had a look at some of them and there was one that contained 49% carbohydrates and this, was a pres this is a prescription brand um, for dogs. So it's quite concerning. The reason why it's concerning is because dogs and cats don't have a nutrient requirement for carbohydrates. They don't need it in their diet and they definitely don't need it up to the levels of 49%. Um, and the reason why manufacturers do this is because, you know, you have the minimum nutrient requirement set up by AFCO, set up by the National Research Council, and basically the minimum requirements are 22% of protein for dogs, 30% for cats, 8% of fat for dogs, 9% for cats. The minimum requirement for carbohydrates is not stated. That is because it's not a requirement of their diet. But what happens is commercial pet food manufacturers will go, okay, so let's look at dogs. We've got to get 22% of protein and we've got to get 8% of fat. What else are we going to put in this food? Because we just have to meet the minimums carbohydrates it's cheap it fills it up you know it's a it's it's a filler effectively and it's stuff like wheat a lot of it is grain you know wheat corn so high starchy foods if it's a grain-free food you still have the same problem it's still too high in carbohydrates they're just replacing the grain with starchy vegetables the most common one is potato you might also see some tapioca in there um, sometimes it might be something that's a bit healthier um, like a starchy legume, like a chickpea, right? So that's, that's why, that's why this happens, why there's such this high discrepancy of carbohydrates versus everything else, because they're just meeting the minimum, right? Now, um, the problem with feeding a diet that's high in carbohydrates is it can cause degeneration. It can mean a diet that is nutrient deficient. It can, and you can see, um, it can significantly contribute to a, a, a range of diseases so most commonly you see skin conditions, um, obesity can be a problem, diabetes can be a problem. What happens to carbohydrates? They turn into sugar, right? So for an animal who, from an evolutionary perspective, doesn't need carbohydrates and then is eating a high carbohydrate diet, it's not surprising that we're seeing the rates of obesity, skin conditions, diabetes, and even cancer increase because they're eating these high carbohydrate diets that are not natural for them. Um, and in terms of, you know, people might be thinking, okay, well, you've spoken about the minimum requirements. Well, what, you know, what, what, are the, what, are, what are my recommended macronutrient ratios? And this will, you know, I'll say mine because obviously, you know, I know what mine are, um, but there's different, there's different ratios depending on who you speak to. Some people may be trained in nutrition. Some people may not. There are a lot of people out there talking about this is what you should feed and, you know, you don't know well how much how much have they actually learned about this, or are they just like you just reading it and c coming up to these formulations? Some people will also have tried and tested what works with their animal, which is great if they're able to work out what works best for their animal. That's brilliant. But what works for one animal may not necessarily work for another, right? Um, 
And when you Google, like I've done it because I'm curious as what people see when they Google these things. And when you Google raw diets for dogs, generally the most common you come up with is 80-10-10. So that's 80% meat, 10% bones, 10% organ meats. That's a prey model diet. There's no plant matter there, right? Um, The other one is barf. That's quite a common one. And that has more, that drops down. It actually incorporates your plants. So it's like 70% meat, 10% bone, 10% organ meats, 10% plant foods. And that plant foods is things like vegetables, nuts, seeds, grains, fruit, right? So that's your barf diet. That's where we see the plant foods coming in. The macronutrients that I generally recommend are closer to the barf model than the prey model. Um, So I recommend 70% meat, organ meats and bones and 30% plant foods. Um, And for cats, I recommend 88 to 95% meat, organ meats and bones and then 5 to 12% plant foods. Um, So, and that's how have I come up with these macronutrients? Who am I to be saying that these are better nutrients, macronutrients than the others? My training, my education. Like I've, you know, I've been trained on these things. I've been assessed on these things. Um, I've looked, you know, through, through my studies, I, one of my assignments was looking at all of the different recommendations that are made, made and coming up with what I think is the best macronutrient ratio for dogs and cats. Um, and, you know, looking at some Australian vets like um, who is the creator of BARF, Dr Ian, Ian Billinghurst, you know, a lot of my studies was formed around um, the information that he presents um, but then it's also looking, I can't remember all of them, but there's a bunch of other vets I, that I looked at as well in terms of what's their rec- what their recommendations are, what does the science say, um, what are the concerns with your prey model diets and things like that, and kind of getting that um, happy medium between what the top vets and top dog and cat nutritionists are recommending. And a lot will also recommend, um, I think, Dr. Karen Becker, who's obviously quite popular in this space, she also recommends um, very similar ratios to what I recommend. Um, so, yeah, that's, that can be a really big problem is ignoring those macronutrient um, ratios. So to summarise it, the six common mistakes are feeding only meat, um, not feeding any vegetables, leaving out organ meats, thinking that supplements aren't necessary, ignoring micronutrient requirements and misunderstanding, misunderstanding the macronutrient ratios. Absolutely. So just real quick, I want to find out from you, what is your best advice on incorporating some of these um, plant-based ingredients to a raw diet? Like you said, I think believe you said earlier, it's, you know, you can't just feed the carrot. So how do you get these animals to absorb uh, these, these plant-based um, materials? Yeah, that's a really good question because that's the next thing is like, okay, well, I'm supposed to feed plant foods, but how do I do that? And if people don't have that information, then they just go and they might just chop up a few veggies and add it to their dinner. And a lot of times, especially the cats aren't going to eat it, no way in hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But a lot of times the dogs won't eat it either. And they'll be like, you know, they eat around it and they leave the bits of veggies. Um, so most importantly is getting is is providing those the plant those plant foods in a way that they can absorb the nutrients. The best way to do that is by um, that. So plants have very plants, you know, grains, things like that. They have very tough, fibrous walls. Um, cats and dogs don't have um, the same digestive enzymes that we do. That we can you know we can eat a carrot and we can absorb it just by eating it in its whole form, right? Um, so the way that we can break down those tough fibrous walls is um, you can cook them, but then you're going to get nutrient loss. 
Um, you could, you know, the best way to, if you're cooked, choose to choose to cook is by lightly steaming them or your, or your um, root veggies like your pumpkin or your sweet potato. Obviously, you can steam them, but, you know, you boil it is probably an easier way to do that because steaming might take quite some time. Um, and then another way is um, soaking, sprouting, and then my favourite is pulverising. So what I do and what I recommend my clients do is ideally they'll have a food processor already. They won't have to go and buy one or they've got a blender. Um, so majority of vegetables can just be put into the food processor. You will need to add some liquid to it. Otherwise, it's all just going to get stuck and the machine won't work. Um, so you're putting your things like, let's think about the do- veggies I made for my dog this week. He had zucchini. He loves zucchini. Zucchini is his favourite vegetable, so I always put zucchini in. So I put the zucchini in. Sometimes, um, I actually can't remember what I put in this week, so I'll just go with it. But <laughs> sometimes I put spinach. <laughs> yeah, he had, he had zucchini. He had spinach. Sometimes it'll be like, so I buy him stuff, but sometimes it'll be like stuff that's in my fridge that's like not looking its best. It started to degrade a bit. It's not rotten, but it's starting to be like, I don't want to eat that. Um, so you can use your veggie scraps as well. Um, broccoli, cauliflower, green beans. Um, you can put carrots in, obviously. He, this week he had some sweet potato um, with his veggies. And then I'll also put things in there like tahini. Um, or some coconut oil, like some good healthy fats, um, some apple cider vinegar. So apple cider vinegar has numerous benefits, but it also helps, it's a digestive aid. So I put it in there as well just to provide extra support with being able to break down the vegetable, the plant foods and get those nutrients. So I always put apple cider vinegar in there. I'll put in some nuts and seeds. So I would have already ground up whether it's flax seeds or chia seeds or hemp seeds. So good good essential fatty acids, good omega-3, um, great for the skin. Um, so I put that in there um, and always making sure it's ground, not the whole seeds. You just put the whole seeds that you'll end up looking at the poo and they'll be, you know, oh, hello, flaxseed, you know what I mean? Um, so you've got to yep. grind them up in your blender um, first. So I put in those omega-3 rich seeds in there. Um, might put some nuts in there or sometimes I might give nuts as a snack for him. Like the other day I was having some cashews and he's like, hey, give me some. So, you know, made it more a bit of an activity. So I just threw them over onto his bed because um, I was in the kitchen and can see his bed from the kitchen. And he, then he ran over and found the cash, little cashew and, and ate it. Did that a few times. So, yeah, there's some really good plant foods. Ideally, you would be soaking those nuts first and then either dehydrating them or making them into a meal, uh, like a ground-up meal powder and adding those. Um, but generally that's the way that I provide veggie, my the veggies to my dog. And I'll also scoop out a little bit of that veggie mix and give it to my cats as well. Like tiny, tiny amount because the cats also have, um, well, no, I also put in the dog's veggies, um, some green, a greens powder. So at the moment I'm using a combination of like spirulina, chlorella, um, wheatgrass, um, barley grass. So I put some of that in there for some as a nutrient booster, um, antioxidant, detoxification, things like that. Um, and, yeah, the cats have that too. And that way they can, you know, they're presented in a way it's all just mash. Like it, what, by the time I finish this whole process, it looks like mash, like mashed potato. Um, you don't want any little bits because the most fussiest of animals, again, they will eat around the little bits. Like some people will just grate it. And their dog might eat that, but a lot of dogs will still leave all the little grated bits of zucchini, yeah? Um, so pulverising it so it's unrecognisable. 
It's just a mash. And then you get the meat, the protein aspect, and then you combine the veggie part through with the protein aspect of the meal. Nice. That sounds incredible. I, I love the term too, pulverizing. <laughs> yeah, pulverize. <laughs> yeah, awesome. well, because that's, that's what a food processor does. And I do have a recipe um, on my website as a free download. It's called Your Dog's Best Veg. So if people want to get that recipe, which I based on, on another podcast I did, they wanted to know if I, could, if I had a recipe and I didn't. So I created it for that podcast because when I do the veggies for my dog, I just like just throw it in because I kind of know what needs to be in there. So I actually sat down one day. I'm like, okay, I've got to make these veggies mix. I'll write the recipe as I'm going. So it's actually based on what I feed my dog. So yeah. So and what do you try, do with that? Tried and tested. So what, when it's made up. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. yeah. When it's made up, because I like, I make as much as my food processor will fit in its biggest container. Okay. Um, and for him, he's a greyhound. So he's quite big. He eats a lot of food. Um, and I'm big on veggies and he loves his veggies. So it makes about, I think it makes like 12 or 15 cups or something like that of veggie mix. So I freeze it. Like I have two big glass containers, um, put it into there, sometimes a bit left over. So I put that in his like dinner on the day that I actually make the mix. Um, so I get like seven serves out of it. And then I'll freeze one of the big containers and the other container stays in the fridge and that's like three serves sit in the fridge. Um, and that's it. So it's just, I do it once a week. You're gonna, if you've got more freezer space, unfortunately I don't. If you have more freezer space, you could do double the quantity. So then you've only got to do it once a fortnight. Um, and then you just, yeah, you could do single serves if you want, but I find it easier just to do, because he's a big dog and he eats a lot. It's just easier to do the containers that have like three serves. It will still stay fresh over that you know, course of three days. Anything longer than three days, it's kind of getting nasty. Um, but yeah, right. that's what I do. And then just nice. That sounds like a great serving. combination. So serving size, what, I'm sorry, did I miss that? What was the serving size? Like, like a tablespoon or? Oh, well, depends on the size of the animal, right? For my cats. Okay, so you do your percentage. Yeah. For my cats, they're getting like, what do they get? Well, even they're different sizes. One's like nine kilos. He's like a rugby player. He's massive. Um, <laughs> so he will generally get about half a teaspoon okay. with his dinner. But the other two, they're like half his size. So they'll get like quarter of a teaspoon. Um, but they're getting other plant matter throughout the day as well. So they eat grass, right? So I'm not just doing their 3 to 12% um, in, in their dinner. They're also getting grass when they go and eat it during the day. And in, in the breakfast, there's some plant matter in there too. And I also have a powder that I add to the food, which is the, um, the, the greens, coconut, sunflower, lecithin. So I put that in there as well. So yeah, that's okay. why I only do Excellent. a quarter teaspoon for the cats. For the dogs, it just depends on their size. Like you go by the ratio. So my ratio is um, for your starchy vegetables, no more than 10% of the diet. Um, and then your, your greens, your whites that aren't starchy, like 20%. So whatever the amount is that you're feeding your dog, 20% of the total daily amount would be that veggie mix. Okay. Or, well, Perfect. 30% if you've got some starchy veggies in there, like your sweet potato, your pumpkin. Right, right, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Awesome, awesome recipe. So I want to talk about raw feeding puppies and kittens. So, you know, the first time that I brought my two pups to the vet, um, and then I said, I'm doing a raw, raw food diet. And, and she said, basically, oh, no, you can't do a raw food uh, diet for puppies. 
you can't feed raw until one year of age because they don't get enough calcium absorption out of the raw bone. So just speak on just raw feeding puppies and kittens and your thoughts around that. Yeah, it's a good question because it's a common, you know, it's why, and this is the thing, you know, you take your puppy and kitten to the vet and they're prescribed a kitten food and then that's, that's kind of like set the course of the nutrition for the rest of their life because generally a person will stay on that brand of food, will just switch over from kitten or puppy to the adult variation, right? Um, and a lot of the times, more the time, it will be a dry food and there might be some canned food as well. Now, if we go back to nature, there is no, you know, the, the mum cats and the mum dogs are not cooking the food for the babies, right? <laughs> Initially, <laughs> there's no, I often say, there's no, you know, barbecue happening. There's no, they're not building a fire and cooking up the mouse. There's this, there's this great cartoon image of like mice sitting around a campfire, not mice, cats sitting around a campfire cooking a mouse. And sometimes I use that to like, this just, this doesn't happen. You know, they do not yeah. cook up their food for eating it. So in a natural environment in the wild, like we're talking about domesticated animals here, but we look at, if we look at their ancestors, right. Um, and then also if we look at, um, you know, cats who are born into the wild, you know, not necessarily by choice, right. They eat a mouse. And once the animal, well, initially, obviously puppies and kittens are fed milk. Of the, of the mother's teats, right? Yeah. That's their diet. Until they're at a point where the, the mum goes, okay, that's enough now, you're ready for solids. Yep. Same way it happens with humans and babies. We start off drinking off our mother's teats. Let's just stick with teats. Um, and then <laughs> yeah, eventually go. mum goes, okay, it's time now, you're at the age where you can start having solids, right? Same thing happens with our cats, our dogs, our puppies, kittens. So then when the, pu when the puppy or kitten is ready for solids, right? Once the puppy or kitten is weaned, then the, the, the mum will start to give the kitten or the puppy a little bit of what they've caught. So let's stick with the mice analogy. Mum cat gets a mice, comes home, kittens are waiting, starving, meow, meow, meow. The mum will probably bite it down a bit, right, to um, make it a bit softer because their, their teeth won't be like super strong at that point. Um, and then they will feed the little kitten a bit of that, you know, mouse, right? And then as the kitten's teeth strengthen, as the kitten's, you know, digestive system, you know, improves, gets established, all of that, then slowly the, the kitten will learn to eat the same food in exactly the same way that the mother is eating it. The mother will teach the kitten to hunt. The mother will teach the kitten to kill and then the mother will teach the kitten how to eat it once you've killed it, right? So this is the process that happens in nature. Um, as I said, the mum is not cooking the mouse for the kitten, right? The same way the dog is not cooking the chicken for the puppy, right? Um, so how do we replicate that as human beings who aren't going and going through that process because that would be pretty gross. I don't want to go and eat, partially eat a mouse and then give it to my baby give it to my baby kitten. No, thanks. Um, so how do we replicate that? The easiest way to replicate that is obviously minced meats. Yeah. They're already, it's like they've already been chewed by their, their, their mum. Minced meats. And, but we're not just feeding minced meats because that, you go back to those six common mistakes of raw meat, of raw meating, of raw eating. It's not feeding a meat only diet. 
Um, and you would include those organ meats in there as well. You would include, um, you know, sometimes initially you might, you would feed like ground up bone, but then as their teeth start to strengthen, you can feed, you can start to feed smaller pieces of bones, like um, the, the tips off chicken wings, for example. And then as they start to, you know, continue to grow, you can feed bigger bits of bones. Um, including plant matter in there in the way that you would include plant matter for an adult dog or a cat. So the diet is the same. Um, I don't know so much about this reasoning behind they can't absorb the calcium from the bones in the way that an adult cat or dog can. Now, through in that natural analogy that I've given, they obviously don't go from milk to food straight away. That is, there, there is that transitioning process. So it really depends on what age you get your kitten or puppy. Is it at an age where they would have been completely weaned off of the milk by then? Well, then, yes, they're okay to eat a softer version of what an adult cat or a dog would eat. Right, exactly. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, the, the, the biggest question that I get quite often is how do I transition a cat to raw that's already been eating a kibble diet or, you know, the canned food diet and whatnot. And actually just to tell a quick story, we adopted two cats at about 18 months of age that have been fed nothing but low grade um, kibble. Mm. And we were able to transition them slowly, but surely. So I'll tell you what I did first and then you can just go ahead and speak on with your own advice. So what we did is we went from, um, we, we start, you know, of course we had the original kibble that they were eating. And then what we did is we, we bought a couple of, you know, as, as, as natural as you can get canned food from our, you know, our, our local supplier. And that was, you know, just the, you know, the basic canned food. So we started them on just a little bit of wet food, you know, just to get them to transition a little bit to starting to eat wet, soft material. And so after a couple of weeks of doing that, then we started to mix in a bit of the raw minced and that was including bone. And I have, a, I have a nice raw food supplier that, you know, minces everything together, bone and organ and, and everything all combined. So we started to mix that into the wet food and then little by little, we slowly transitioned them to then when they only eat now the, the raw uh, combination of bone, minced bone or sorry, crushed bone, minced organ, minced meat and whatnot. So that was our journey. We were able to do that, but they, they said some cats are going to, you know, um, take to this and some aren't. So mm-hmm. just talk about your advice when transitioning, you know, cats that have been eating kibble too raw. Yeah. It's always cats it's always more challenging and I'm going through, you may have it yourself as well with clients. You generally get to get, there's kind of like a theme of clients that come to you. The, the, the theme of clients that are coming to me now is cats or clients with cats or dogs that are really, really fussy. So in the same way that a cat would be finicky. So I'm dealing with a lot of this at the moment, right? Cause that's the common trend and clients that are coming to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So I'm like, Oh God, another challenging one. Okay. All right. Um, so basically what I do is, well, cats, it's all, first of all, it's always going to be harder with cats. You know, cats are naturally more finicky. I like to say they're just a bit more aware and they know what they want and they're independent and they're not going to settle for anything less than what they want. You know, it's one of the things I love about cats, right? That, you know, they, they please themselves before anyone else, right? Um, and so, <laughs> so that, that applies the same with their diet. 
So if they've, if, and it's always harder if they've just been on kibble. So you did the right thing in terms of starting to include some moist food into their diet. The transition is really, really important. You wouldn't want to go from kibble straight to raw because you're going to get, you're going to get diarrhea without a doubt, right? Because you're going from an artificially flavoured dead food, and I say dead because it's been killed by all the heat and the processing, right, to something that is raw and for them full of natural flavour and raw is, can be very, very rich, right, on the gut and their gut has not, is not been trained to eat such a rich diet. So they could have stomach pain as well. Um, so the transition is really important. Um, but, and I apply like a 10% rule. So I replace 10% of the current food with 10% of the new food. And then every two to three days, provided there is no digestive symptoms, which normally presents with diarrhea, as I said, then you can go up to the next stage, decrease another 10%, replace with another 10% of new food. So you'll now be at 80% old food, um, 20% new food and you just repeat that process this process if there are no challenges along the way takes about two three weeks right um but with cats there's generally always a challenge and if you've got an adult cat who's never eaten bones before i can pretty much guarantee they're never going to eat bone unless it's ground up in their food because i've done it with mine i went through the transition process with my own cat my, my own cats because i started studying in 2014 and then they were on a part of their diet was good quality, right? It wasn't raw or part was raw, but it was Zewi Peak. You would know Zewi Peak. It's a New Zealand brand. It's available all over the world. It's a brilliant commercial pet food, right? I yeah. still feed that to my cats. And there's a reason why I do that, which I'll explain because for some people they might want to go, well, how come she's not feeding 100% raw? Um, now, so... Sometimes it is necessary to, or most of the times it's necessary, they've only had kibble to transition to cooked first and then raw. So you can do that by incorporating a canned food or you could go straight from kibble to feeding a cooked home-prepared diet. Just as long as there is that, that intermediary step between kibble and raw. So whether you get a good quality canned food like Zewi Peak, um, Feline Natural, Canine Natural, they're another one as well. And similar New Zealand brand, very similar concept. However, I do find that Zewi Peak, Zewi Peak is uh, more palatable for cats. Um, when I've had clients try the Feline Natural and even with my cats trying the Feline Natural, they haven't really liked it anywhere near as much as they've liked the Zewi Peak. Um, so, you know, using that as a transition or just starting off on what you would feed them raw but cooking it first. Yeah, and then um, going through that 10%, 10% at a time. If you go with um, kibble to cooked to raw, then you're going to have that longer period. So expect another like, you know, two to three weeks transitioning because you then would be transitioning from um, the can to the raw or at least incorporating some raw into their diet. The way I do it with my cats is for breakfast, they will have Zewi Peak or another brand is Organic Paws. Organic Paws, I don't know if you can get it in New Zealand and you wouldn't be able to get it overseas, but in Australia you can get it. It's basically, um, it's organic, obviously, it's Organic Paws, and it's meat, it's ground up bone, and it's organ meats. I think they put some kelp in there. Maybe they put some tripe in there, um, and that's it. So it's really good for like convenience feeding in terms of you don't have to go to the butcher and get all the separate bits, yeah? So my cats will have, depending on the cat, so they've all got their own different tastes and preferences and what have you. So one, she's like, 
I want the Zeewee Peak air dried for breakfast, please. But sometimes <laughs> she'll have a bit of the canned. Yeah. And then the boys, they'll have either just the Zeewee Peak canned. They're not as good drinkers as my girl, Lily. So I'm like, you're not having just the air dried, dehydrated. So that's dehydrated raw food. It's still raw, but it's just been dehydrated for the listeners who don't know about Zeewee Peak. Um, but for my boys who aren't good drinkers, I'm like, you need more moisture. Okay. So you're going to have the can for breakfast. Then for dinner, they do have the home prepared. So it's a, I go to the butcher once a fortnight um, and I get, you know, a bit of minced meat, a bit of diced meat. I get the organ meats and I get some bones. Um, and then I mix it all together in glass containers, 14 of them stick it in the freezer. And then I add the extra bits that I add, which is includes the plants and any other supplements that I'm giving them. Um, so the reason why I still feed them Zewe Peak, which I was feeding them, they've had it for probably at least a decade. Um, the reason I feed it is because I, like many people, have fussy cats. One will eat anything. He'd be fine just on raw home prepared because he, I know he would eat a variety of proteins. My girl, she will not eat raw chicken. She just is not interested in raw chicken at all. Um, and she really, the only raw meat she likes home prepared is cow, is beef. And I don't want her just eating beef. So that's one of the reasons why I do the Zewe Peak because I know that way she's getting a greater variety of protein than if I just gave her raw beef. Also, when would you ever see a cat going into a field and eating a cow? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not the most, I mean, it's natural in terms of it being protein, being meat for a cat, but in terms of the species they would eat, it's actually not natural for them to eat a cow. You know, so if you want to go really hardcore on nature and what's natural, it, you know, the most natural that you can get easily from a commercial basis is um, chicken and rabbit, you know, your poultry, right? Um, but she won't eat that raw. And so I supplement the raw home prepared diet with that, you know, good, high quality commercial um, brand of food, the Zebra Peak. The Zebra Peak air dried is dehydrated, so it's raw. And the can, they actually put the food into the cans, it goes into the cans raw. Um, and they cook it in the cans, which are BPA-free, um, to the minimum legally required temperature. So it's as close to raw in a canned food that you can get, um, which is one of the reasons why I recommend it because, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's basically, so we talk about transitioning. A lot of times it can be a lot slower than 10%. So I've had clients with cats who are like, yeah, no, they're not eating it. And they... They chose turkey as the raw to transition in because one of the cats had an intolerance to or an allergy to chicken, right? So they chose turkey um, and we, we've had to go a lot slower, like it was like, like a teaspoon, not even a teaspoon, <laughs> like tiny, tiny, tiny. And slowly, last time I checked, I'm checking in with them this afternoon, but the last time she checked in with me, I think they were up to 80% turkey. So they're doing the turkey with the Zewee Peak and obviously adding the extra bits that I recommend them to add in. Um, so it's been much longer than two, three weeks with these guys. But, you know, like I said before, every animal is different and some cats can be extra, extra finicky. 
Absolutely. You need, you need to have patience too. When we, if you want to change to this diet, which for, in my opinion, and I know in your opinion is the best diet for them so they can absolutely thrive. And, uh, and, and, you know, we had, we have two foot, well, we had two fussy cats. Unfortunately, one of my female cat just passed away a few days ago. So I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Rest in peace, Evie. But uh, we miss her dearly. But, you know, starting going back to when we were transitioning her and her brother, you know, it was, you know, okay, little, little bit by little bit of the raw, but also they were a bit picky on what type of raw meats we were getting. Yes. Same thing with, with, um, with them. It was, they didn't really like the chicken or the white meats, the poultry, but they yeah. absolutely loved rabbit. So currently what we're doing right now is we always make sure we have rabbit. You know, this is minced rabbit, you know, so you got heart, you've got kidney, um, you know, and yep. the, the proper ratios, you've got bone in the proper ratios, and then you've got the, the meat crushed up and it's all, you know, crushed, basically goes with the grinder and then they make it into um, somewhat cube form. And so with that, you know, we make sure that we have rabbit and then we, you know, I was always taught that you need to have, you know, need to have, but it's best to have three separate proteins per week. So three different types of proteins. So what we do with, with him currently is we always make sure we have rabbit and then we also feed him lots of wallaby because that's what the dogs eat. The dogs love the wallaby. Um, and then also uh, venison. And then every now and then we'll try and mix in a bit of salmon. But again, they get fussy with salmon. You know, they get fussy mm. with salmon, turkey, they're okay with. Um, and then chicken, they, don't, they won't touch it. So it always has to be mixed in with a little bit of rabbit you know, to really encourage them. Yeah, because uh, they like, that's what they like, yeah. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, it's just about being patient, though. Of course, we went through a stage where then we started to try and give them, you know, a block of chicken, minced chicken that, you know, one day, and they wouldn't touch it, you know. But then the next day it was turkey, and they'd somewhat eat that. And then wallaby, they love the red meat for whatever reason. You know, it's like if it's red meat, they're all over it. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's a little bit of my journey. And thank you for sharing, you know, your, your experience and how to transition cats properly. So let's talk about can I just, wallaby. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Can I just quickly jump in there? Um, um, what was I going to jump in with? Oh my gosh. Um, was, I should have written was it down. about the three proteins per week. No, I agree. Variety is, okay. variety is important. Um, okay. I think it was about, oh gosh, my brain. Um, I do have some tips if you would like to hear some tips based on what you're feeding. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. So I would say not just 100% minced, get some texture in there, especially if they're not eating bones. If they're eating bones, then it's fine to just have a, a minced dinner. Um, but you really want to, for the dental benefits, getting like some diced bits. So with mine, I mean, it might make it a bit more challenging um, in terms of where you're getting yours from. But so mine still have some mints in their diet because mints is the easiest when you're adding in the extra bits to the diet. That's good for mixing in, right? Um, but adding in some, like I get some like diced bits of meat. So they have to actually chew it, right? Um, because the chewing is going to help them to clean their, to clean their teeth. Yeah. Um, whereas just a soft food, they're not, if they don't need to chew, then they're not going to get that um, abrasive action, that cleaning action on their teeth. Um, the other thing is really, really great to include um, fish. Now, obviously, a lot of people may, may know about the problems that we have with the contamination of mercury. And that happens with, our, with the bigger fish, like your tuna, even your salmon. And so my recommendation is you feed small oily fish. So that's like your sardines or your mackerel or your herring. Um, and that fish is a great source of taurine for cats. So is heart. 
So that's one thing I want to mention as well. You're already doing heart, but for some people who are thinking of going to the raw home prepared journey, I just remembered the other thing I was going to say. It was about raw isn't suitable for everyone. Um, so um, heart is really, really great source of taurine for cats and taurine, they've got to have it in their diet. Dogs don't need it added to their diet. But cats do need to have it added in the diet. They don't make enough themselves, right? So making sure there's heart in there. So I also, um, so they get a bit of mincemeat. They get the diced beef because that's what they eat raw. And then the organ meats are also, I get the butcher because I don't want to chop up liver, kidney, all that stuff. will also chop it up for me. So they also have that to chew on. And then one cat will get a bit of bone, you know, a few times a week in his dinner as well. So making, thinking about, well, how can I create texture, dental benefit to the food by adding chunks into their food? So that might be a transition process as well, just like adding in one chunk and then slowly in small, like pinky, top of your pinky finger size, yeah, adding right. that small chunk and then slowly increasing the amount of chunks and then slowly increasing the size of those chunks. Because again, it's like natural diet. If they eat a mouse, they're just going to sit there and chomp on it. Yeah, same thing for exactly. dogs as well. Exactly the same. Um, and the thing on raw is, oh, fish, hang on. Fish should only be fed about two to three times a week. Um, or you can feed it more frequently, um, but in lesser quantities because it doesn't give all the nutrients that they need. Um, and then raw, not suitable for everyone. And I have clients, you know, potential clients who ring me and they say, do you only recommend raw? And I say, no, optimally raw. Yes, that is the absolute best that you can feed. But if your animal is suffering from something like pancreatitis, there's no way he, we'll be able to start him on a raw diet. We will aim to get onto raw, but initially it's about just getting him onto a fresh food diet. So that's going to be cooked. And then we see how he goes, we cook, we heal his digestive system. And once, you know, a certain period of time has elapsed, generally looking at what we might start trying in raw at about the three month mark, we'll go through that 10% transition process. We'll try a little bit of a little bit of raw. How is this digestive system responding to that? If it's okay, we increase and we increase and we increase. It might be that sometimes we have to go back a bit. Um, but, and then eventually we always aim to get there. Um, but it's not suitable for every every um every dog and every cat particularly i find your um, cavoodle breeds they are prone i've got a lot of cavoodles they come to me with digestive issues they seem to be and i've spoken with vets about this as well and they notice the trend as well um that cavoodles seem to be more prone to digestive issues um so you might have cavoodles as well if they do have a digestive issue they may not be able to start on raw straight away they've got to be on that cooked diet first so yeah i just wanted to mention that also interesting yeah yeah you know, i guess it's 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 always based uh, like you said in the beginning it's individuality with every single animal right and yeah. really finding what diet exactly. works best for that individual is the ultimate goal yeah know? because some people might go they might go raw and then they might find this isn't working and then they give up and they go back to commercial process where it's like well no you just had to take it slower and you had yeah. to do some you had to allow their gut to heal first you needed to do that therapeutic work to actually help their digestive system heal so that they can handle it. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, I think that's really when, when working with somebody like you uh, really comes into play. It's like, you know, you need to, if, if, if it's, if you've done the regiment from whatever you've read or, you know, course you've taken and you know, you, you're not getting the results, then turn to your specialists that can help guide you along the way uh, to tweak the recipes and provide the support and everything else 
uh, you know, in, in terms of transitioning. So, you know, I, 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 I love the work that you're doing in, in helping people um, with their animals in that type of way. Yeah, thank you. And I agree with you. But I would also say for some people, if they want to fast track it or make sure that they want to get it right from the get go, then there's also that benefit as well as working with a specialist right from the get go. Because, you know, you're also going to have, depending on how that certain person works, um, in my programs, I'm, you know, all of my programs have support, email phone support outside of the consult, um, the actual consultations. So basically creating a situation where people have access to me whenever they have a question, whenever something is not working or something's going on, they know they don't have to wait for the consult. They can just get right in there and contact me and they're going to get the support that way because there can be a lot of trial and error. And like what you said before, yes, it definitely requires patience. It definitely requires commitment and even more so with cats or with animals who have got a health condition. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, heaps of information, uh, incredible knowledge that you just dropped on us. I really appreciate your time. So talk about um, your, your core or what do you got coming up? What, what do you got going on right now? Yeah, so coming up, um, and I will also say you were going to ask about wallabies. We don't have time, but I've written a blog. I've got a three-part blog series on feeding um, it's kangaroo, but obviously captures wallabies as well, feeding kangaroo to pets. Um, if people are injured, if people are feeding that and they want to learn, well, you know, what do I have to say about it? Because most people, I think I'm the only person who does what the kind of work that I do that recommends against it. Um, there are a number of health concerns with it, basically higher levels of bacteria, E. coli, salmonella, um, and things like that. So really worthwhile for people to go and read that. It covers the ethics as well. But in terms of those people who are just concerned about the health aspects, it takes it through, takes the reader through all of that in detail with reference to um, research and things like that. But exciting things I've got coming up are um, a nutrition course. So for people who are more inclined to do a course on their own and to teach, well, not teach themselves, but, you know, go through the process by themselves um, or um, without, you know, the one-on-one -on -one programs with me or with you know someone else who does what I do um, this course is going to be somewhere but I haven't finalized the content yet um, it's pretty there's a lot of information in there it's looking at this point to be eight modules um, and the idea of it is it's going to run people through um, I should have checked my outline because I didn't check my outline <laughs> but <laughs> it's right. from, mem from memory it's going to run people through you know what are the what are the healthy foods to feed what's wrong with food today um, what do we need to feed for, you know, optimum well-being? Um, it goes through, like I go through, um, really goes into detail about, you know, what food you may already be feeding, what's wrong with it, what are the problems, what are the potential problems with it, why, we, why I'm recommending these foods. Um, it talks about the nutrient requirements of both cats and both dogs. Um, and then it talks about, okay, then it breaks down what the diet looks like. This is what you feed. These are the quantities, the macros, the micros, everything that we've discussed today um, goes through all of that, provides like, um, you know, recipes, diet plans, things like that. And it's really aimed at those people with animals who don't have a health condition, but they just want to learn how can they feed a natural fresh food um, diet to their cat or their dog so that they can thrive, so that they can be, have optimum wellness and live like a really long, healthy, happy life. Um, and so that's going to be online. There will be, you know, with everything, there will be some kind of forum, some kind of group. So where people have access to me throughout the duration of the course to ask me questions and things like that. 
Um, but yeah, I'm really excited. I'm working with someone to develop that. There's going to be, there's obviously going to be um, uh, physical like slide PowerPoint kind of slide content. There's also going to be videos to go with it, um, PDF handouts and things like that. So it's really going to be, you know, bumper to bumper of cat and dog nutrition information, um, you know, that they can rely upon that's coming from, you know, someone who's spent, you know, quite a bit of time working on this and who's, you know, still studying. Like even, even though I finished that course, I'm still doing other studies as well because, you know, and I always will, there's always new research that comes about. But, um, and I think it's also valuable to learn from different professionals in the field um, because people have different ideas on things. Um, but yeah, that's that course. Um, I can't tell you what the price will be because I haven't worked out the price yet. Um, it <laughs> was, right. it, I'm expecting that it will be available. It was supposed to be available now, like in April, but with coronavirus, it's kind of delayed everything um, because I, we need to get together and do the recording of each of the modules, module videos. But I'm hoping, depending, it's hard, it's hard to say. I would like to say mid-year. Um, like, you know, if the lockdown kind of stuff diminishes, then we might be able to get it done. But, yeah, I guess the, I do have a wait list. So if people want to get up, make sure that they're getting updated and they know when it's available, um, there is, they can sign up on my website. Okay, I'll what's the you, link for your website? Um, Ruth the, Hat URL? Ruth, yeah, ruthhatton.com. So that's Hatton spelt with an E, H-A-T-T-E-N. Um, and then, or they, they can also just Google my name and they'll find it. Um, and then if they click on, um, the seminars tab, then they'll, they'll find the course and they can click through there. And then there's a button there where they can sign up through, sign up for the, um, I'm looking at it now, actually, it says save your seat button. Um, click on that and they can just type in their details and then I'll keep them updated, um, with when the course is going to go live and be available. Awesome. That sounds great. I know that a lot of people will be interested in this type of course because most people that I talk to, they're like, where do I even start, Andy? And I'm like, okay, well, you know, we can do this little by little, but I'm not the expert, you know, in nutrition. So having a course like this where, you know, readily available for people that want to get started or are planning on getting started, you know, there's those puppy owners that are waiting for their pup to fully wean, you know, getting prepared and everything else so that they can start doing this course as well. So awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I know that uh, many people are going to get heaps of information uh from this podcast so um yeah i really appreciate it that's brilliant thank you so much andy awesome sounds good ruth we will catch up soon